Miss the conversation? Find all the interviews in the podcast section on capetalk.co.za. 20 to 4 on a Thursday, that means it's Plan B with Rebecca Davis of Daily Maverick. Rebecca, a very good afternoon. How are you doing? Good afternoon to you, Mike. All right, let's begin. I've been talking a lot about schools today, and I'm going to come to some WhatsApps about those after we've finished. But now let's talk about education on a higher level, namely UCT. You've been doing a bit of reporting on Maverick this week, and it's caused a bit of a stir. What's happening at UCT? Yeah, it's. I think I was thinking about why this, this issue does get people kind of hot and bothered, because obviously not everyone has a direct link to the University of Cape Town. But I think that it really does play a vital role in the kind of society of the Western Cape. I mean, many of us have links to UCT, even if they're not direct. Everyone knows someone who works at UCT or who studies at UCT. And then there's the fact, I suppose, that it is also kind of the jewel in South Africa's educational crown. This is the top university, not just in South Africa, but in Africa, one of the best universities in the world. And so to hear allegations that I've been reporting on, that things are going somewhat awry at UCT is, I think, very concerning. There's also the fact that UCT is a public institution. We tend to forget that. Its vice-chancellor, its governing bodies have to report to the Minister of Education. Even though it's not fully funded with government money, it is still counted as a public institution. So what happens there is in the public interest. And what has been happening, it seems, quietly but now coming to the fore, is that there has been this exodus of senior administrators, some of them the most respected in the country, deputy vice chancellors, executive directors and the like, who have been leaving UCT um, in something of a, 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 a torrent, actually. There, were, there are 30 members of the senior UCT administrative team in 2018 when the current vice chancellor, Mamakhet Pakeng, took office. By my count, 14 of them will have left by the end of the year or been suspended or been pushed out for disciplinary reasons. That is a large quantity of your top staff. And what it means also is a worrying lack of continuity in terms of you know, preparing UCT for the future and so forth. But beyond that, Mike, also some worrying allegations about staff who leave signing non-disclosure agreements, NDAs, reportedly very, very uncommon in academia. I mean, for somewhat obvious reasons, academia is supposed to be a sort of bastion of free speech. You have staff leaving at least three to Daily Maverick's knowledge, but probably more being made to sign NDAs, cannot speak about the circumstances around their departure, and allegations that the Vice-Chancellor herself, Mamakheti Pakeng, may be involved to some degree in a kind of creation of a very hostile work culture. Most, most concerningly of all, however, as of last week, we have the kind of strong allegation that both Mamakheti Pakeng and the chair of UCT Council, Babawa Ngonyama, may have misled the UCT Council and the UCT Senate about these departures. If true, that is a serious governance breach. There would be great pressure on both of them to step down. Let's see what happens. Today, there is a meeting of the UCT Council, which is confidential. But the days ahead will be very critical, I think, for UCT's governance. And the signs thus far are not encouraging. The UCT Vice-Chancellor has cut short a five-month sabbatical to come back. But in her only public statement to date, she has sought to blame the UCT Senate, which is really quite incredible, saying uh, stability must be returned to that particular body. Senate, of course, has not taken this well. And as I said, Mike, a lot of this might seem like insider baseball, like some kind of arcane labor dispute. It's not. It's a public institution. It's our institution. It's Cape Town's university, one of the best. And I think uh, we, a lot of us have a stake in what happens there.
It does. I'm not going to comment further. You're much better informed than I am. I said at the beginning, I think being Vice-Chancellor of UCT is one of the toughest jobs in the country. There's always going to be someone upset with you uh, because you have so many stakeholders to keep happy. But this does seem to be a serious development, and we'll leave it at that for now. But I'm sure there's more to come in the story. Now, you've been following the JSC interviews this week. Now, they're normally a bit of a circus, but I gather without Dali and Poffo involved, uh, things went a little bit more smoothly this time. Honestly, a real 180 there, Mike. And I think I was thinking today, it's very rare in South Africa these days for things to drastically improve, you know, <laughs> in that direction. And it's so rare for anything not to involve <laughs> Dali and Poffo. He seems to be oh, in everything. <laughs> so really remarkable all around. The JSC interviews this week, they were meeting to interview for a whole bunch of um, positions, but perhaps most importantly for the Supreme Court of Appeal. And the interviews went very smoothly. There was a lot of respect on both sides. We've previously seen judges being absolutely humiliated, eviscerated on that platform. That didn't happen this week. But one incident really has stayed with me, and that was a kind of embarrassing interview for the Eastern Cape High Court judge, Mandela Makaula, who was sort of exposed, although albeit in a, in a kind of more kind manner that has been the case previously. He ended up blaming his secretary for an extraordinary range of transgressions. But the, the, the eye-opening moment was when he admitted, and I say admitted, but he sort of said this quite nonchalantly, that he personally was not computer literate. He just sort of threw it out. He said, I'm, I'm not computer literate. He was explaining why he couldn't be blamed for some error in a draft that had gone out. Obviously, this caused a bit of consternation among the JSC, not as much as you might think, but at least the Justice Minister, Ronald Lamola, saying, well, hold on, are you, are you taking any courses, he said, you know, to become computer literate, to which the judge replied, I am really trying, quote, unquote. Now, this is a, you're not that old, but, you know, a judge in his 60s. Uh, the question it posed to me, Mike, was, is it possible to do any professional job in this day and age without being computer literate? I genuinely was gobsmacked, and I'm not even particularly casting Blame on this dude, if he, a judge. If he can do his job, fine, obviously with great assistance from secretaries and so on. But it strikes me as utterly incredible that you can do a job that takes home over a million rand a year in 2022 and not know how to work a computer. And I think I'm right in saying it is an allegation leveled against the Chief Justice, Raymond Zondo, that he, he battles with technological issues. That's right. And, I, you know, I was thinking maybe judges, maybe that is one of the tasks that you could pursue without a computer? I mean, if you are terribly scholarly and learned and also use a printer an enormous amount, I suppose it is vaguely possible. You know, I was sort of Googling this out of interest, and I came across an article from 2018 from Japan where it emerged to the horror of the Japanese parliament that the minister in charge of cybersecurity... Mike could not use a computer and, in fact, did not know what a USB stick was. Ah, but so you see, but then he was ultimately <laughs> secure. That his argument would be he is the most secure person because he, he doesn't use technology. Most secure man in Japan. That's <laughs> most right. But, man. I suppose from that, from that perspective, maybe Judge Makola is All right. Bad. Let's focus on a municipality that uh, gave everyone off time to go and pray. What on earth is happening here? Polokwane municipality is in big trouble. Like many parts of the country, unfortunately, they haven't had water. For weeks and weeks, degraded infrastructure, load shedding, the usual problems. But in the midst of this, last week, Tuesday, the municipality closed all its offices on Tuesday from 9 to 12, opened again at 12.30, with the reason being that its employees were praying. I was really interested in this, Mike. I mean, I, I tend to get a bit, 
concerned about the encroachment of religion into South African politics regularly because it happens a lot, I think, more than people realize. This was an interfaith prayer service, which at least is something, because too often it's just Christian religion that is uh, reflected in these events. But it, it, it was quite something when I asked them to defend this, and they said the reasons were, well, one of the reasons was that they need divine assistance in service delivery. one <laughs> doesn't quite know whether to laugh or cry. They also said a lot of employees had been dying in various ways, and this was a memorial service, but also that, you know, it was a way of spiritual rejuvenation, which would lead them to excel in service delivery. My, my initial response was the same as yours, I suppose, Mike. Yeah. But I did contact one governance expert who said, you know, although we might, our reflex response might be, that's ridiculous, and also particularly unjustifiable in the context of a really struggling municipality where they need those working hours. You know, I wanted to say, do it on the weekend, do it in the lunch hour. He said, you know, there's not really anything different between this and any other wellness initiative, any other corporate bonding initiative. It's just the form this takes. So from that perspective, maybe we shouldn't be getting ourselves into a spot at all. But I'm curious to hear if your listeners would agree with that. Yeah, I would like some observation on that. Uh, municipal workers, government workers, any company saying, OK, we're closing down. We're not doing our activity for an interfaith service. Finally... You quite like the idea of special plates on certain drivers' cars in Australia. Why? <laughs> so Australia coming out this week, I think you might know more than me, Mike. So in the same way that learner drivers have to put a big L on their cars here and elsewhere to show that, you know, watch out behind me, basically, because I might do something a bit strange. Australia has now introduced a system whereby... Drivers who are returning to the roads after a car accident or whom, who have not driven for long periods can put an R plate, which stands for, I think, recovering or returning, <laughs> an R plate on their car, which would indicate to other motorists on the road that they should be extended great I like it. compassion. I love it. Okay, so a big, huge R, which says basically, stay out of my way. I'm troubled. Correct. I really can't drive. I want one, Mike. I'm going to print one at home. Rebecca, I do like that idea. Thank you very much indeed. You certainly don't need an R for your commentary on the radio. Excellent. As always, Plan B with Rebecca Davis. She'll be back same time next week.